Hey friends, thanks for joining us for our very first episode of Across the Divide. Considering Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th and the ongoing war on the Gaza Strip, we decided to start our podcast with a conversation about Gaza. This episode is a riveting and honestly heartbreaking conversation that Daniel and I had with Yusuf El-Khouri. Yusuf is a Palestinian theologian and a lecturer of biblical studies at Bethlehem Bible College. Significantly, he is from Gaza and his family still resides there, so he has a lot of insight into life in Gaza and what the realities there are like right now. In this conversation, we discuss the historical context of Gaza and the blockade, getting into how exactly the current conditions of Gaza came to be. We also delve into Hamas, unpacking Palestinian and Western perceptions of the movement, and Yusuf provides some immensely helpful context for those of us in the U.S. and the pieces that we're often missing when we try and understand Hamas. Near the end of our conversation, we discuss what a Christian response to what is happening in Gaza ought to look like, and Yusuf offers some beautiful examples of a notion he is calling creative nonviolent resistance. There are so many nuggets of wisdom woven throughout this episode, and it's a conversation that I personally learned a lot from. I'm really excited that we were able to talk with Yusuf and provide this dialogue as a resource for all of you listening, who we know have been engaged, concerned, and have a lot of questions about what's happening in Gaza and Palestine right now. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to share with you our conversation with Yusuf El-Khouri. Yusuf Al-Khouri, welcome to our podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you, Daniel and Jen, to have me. Can you, before we start talking about what's happening in Gaza and the um, situation over there, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your PhD studies? Yes, my name is Yusuf Al-Khouri, which literally means Joseph the Priest. I come from a priestly family that has at least uh, 800 years of heritage uh, serving at the Greek Orthodox Church in Palestine. Um, I'm originally from Gaza. I grew up at the Greek Orthodox Church, went to a Catholic school, and later attended uh, an evangelical Bible college. So it's sort of ecumenical uh, personality here. I moved to Bethlehem about 15 years ago for my biblical studies at Bethlehem Bible College. I met my wife uh, in Bethlehem, Myrna, which means Mary. And in 2019, I started my PhD in biblical studies, uh, not biblical studies in particular, but model mostly focused on contextual biblical interpretation and theologies focusing on the kingdom of God in the context of empires. And empires here mostly indicating the similarities between the Roman Empire in the first century, the original context of Jesus' ministry and proclamation of the kingdom of God, and the 21st century empire, which is Israel. And see how actually the Palestinian people who live under imperial colonial settler colonial rule can help us understand the text which originated in the context of the first century. So making this comparison between um, the Roman Empire and the Israeli Empire and their context help us to understand the biblical text better and have more insights into the text and its context. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. I would love to talk with you more maybe later on about your research and how we can 
think about these connections between um, uh, Palestine 2,000 years ago and Palestine, Israel today. Um, so, I, so you are from Gaza. Um, I know you're you you're not doing well. Um, none of us is doing well because of what's happening right now over in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, how you're doing? Tell us about your family. I know you have some family in Gaza. Just kind of give us a, an update on what's happening with you and also your family in, in the Gaza Strip right now. So yes, my family is still in Gaza and currently, actually, <laughs> for the last almost 18 days, I've been sheltering at the Greek Orthodox Church in Gaza City, the same church where the compound was uh, targeted directly or indirectly uh, a few days ago, resulting in the killing of uh, at least 17 people. Few of them are uh, childhood friends of mine and people that I went to school with and uh, distant relatives. I mean like third or fourth cousin or um, in-laws, part of the greater family. So since then, uh, everything has changed. My wife and I currently live in the Netherlands for my PhD studies and we take shifts day and night in order to keep up with my family and making sure that they are safe and alive. Um, and the last 24 hours have been very tragic, horrifying, especially uh, last night, as every night, sounds like uh, every night the Israeli airstrike gets worse than the night before. And that was actually their uh, um, the response when I asked, how was your night? Um, they said it was worse than the night before. Uh, they are still alive. Um, no place is safe in Gaza. So this is the current situation. I, I actually, I, I was telling people my blood is boiling uh, of anger uh, because of the injustice and the oppression, the killing, the systematic aggression that my people have been experiencing for so long while the world is totally ignorant about it. And it touches home more and more when you know that your family is being part of it and in the middle of it. Three families who are actually sheltering at the church right now lost their houses in the last massive airstrike on Gaza about three or four hours ago. Um, beside that, you are familiar that um, several of those who are still at the church lost their children. One of them is Ramiz al-Suri. Uh, he lost the three of his children in the Israeli uh, airstrike three days ago. And his children are close friends of my uh, nephews and niece. And my niece was telling her mom, my sister, uh, yesterday or the day before, um, mom, I wish this war will end, but my friend will not return. Um, so this is part of the breaking because you get to see those innocent children who have nothing to do with the war uh, are experiencing this uh, these traumatic events, not only this traumatic, these traumatic events for the last 10 or 11 years of their life. Just for sharing with us a little bit of, of what you've been experiencing and, and hearing, um, I could hear in your voice how difficult it was for you to share uh, most of that. And so uh, we just want to say that we acknowledge the, uh, the weight uh, that it can be uh, to to continue to talk about the realities and share, you know, conversations you're having with your your family, 
knowing that sometimes it can also be helpful, but still the weight of that grief and anger and broken heart. Um, we just want to acknowledge that and and express our gratitude for your willingness to have this conversation. Uh, our hope is truly that um, that it will be helpful to so many uh, who who need to hear um, more uh, of these realities and from your perspective, especially. Um, so thank you. Um, I'm going to share just um, a little bit of an update, um, kind of big picture to bring our listeners up to date of what we've seen uh, so far in Gaza uh, since the start of the war um, and and a little bit of uh, what the realities look like in numbers. Uh, and and I before I share these numbers, I just want to say that it's very easy to become desensitized to big numbers like this when we hear numbers in the thousands of people that have been killed and injured. It's very easy for us to uh, to not recognize that every single one of those is a human life, uh, that many of those are the lives of children. And so for our listeners, I just want to encourage you to pay attention to the particularities of these numbers. Uh, because they're huge and because they're catastrophic. Um, so on Saturday, October 7th, Hamas launched an attack on Israel via air, land, and sea. They broke through the barrier uh, that surrounds Gaza and attacked several Israeli towns near the border. After a few hours, Israel declared war and began retaliation via airstrike attacks throughout Gaza. And as of this recording, uh, which is November 1st, uh, we, we actually decided to re-record and update these numbers for the episode because of how many Gazans are being killed so quickly. Uh, the numbers are going up by the thousands in just a course of a few days. So um, these numbers that I'm sharing are up to date as of November 1st. At this point in time, at least 1,405 uh, have been killed in Israel, and there are at least 5,431 who were injured. 240 captives were taken by Hamas, and at least four of those have been released at this point in time. There are at least 8,796 Palestinians who have been killed in Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, and over 3,500 of those are children, and at least 31 are journalists. There are at least 22,219 Gazans who have been injured. And in the occupied West Bank, there are at least 128 Palestinians who have been killed, at least 1,980 who have been injured, and at least 1,509 Palestinians who have been arrested. So this really shows us to the the sharp spike in violence against Palest Palestinians in the rest of the occupied West Bank. In the first six days of the war, Israel dropped 6,000 bombs on Gaza, which it boasted about on social media. On Friday, October 13th, Israel instructed Gazans in the north to leave Gaza city and travel south, um, telling them that they should try and leave uh, via the border crossing. However, the Rafah border crossing remained closed, so Gazans were not allowed to leave. And then Israel bombed southern Gaza. 
where it had told Gazans to flee, just showing that, as Yusuf said, there is not a safe place for Gazans uh, anywhere, anywhere in Gaza. On Wednesday, October 18th, Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital, run by the Anglican Church, was bombed and around 470 were killed. There have been analyses that have come out by Al Jazeera, Channel 4, and Forensic Architecture that provide some substantial evidence that this bombing was a result of an Israeli airstrike and not a misfired Palestinian rocket, as Israel claimed. The New York Times also came out with a study uh, rele releasing evidence that disproved Israel's claims uh, that this was a Palestinian rocket. On Thursday, October 19th, the Orthodox Church in Gaza was bombed. This is the oldest church in Gaza and the third oldest church in the world. Sixteen Palestinian Christians were killed. This is the church where Yusuf just shared that many of his friends and family were sheltering, and some of whom were killed in that bombing. At this point, Gaza's health system is completely out of surface. Uh, Oxfam came out with a report on October 25th saying that hunger is being used as a weapon of war in Gaza. 62 aid trucks have been let into Gaza at this point. How, however, only 30 of them have been containing food, which is just 2% of the amount of food that would have typically been received uh, in Gaza for, for the span of time uh, since this blockade has been in place. And, and so as, as we're seeing there's a complete deprivation of food, uh, of water, of medical supplies, and now electricity, uh, as, as well as internet. Yusuf, I, I, I want to turn back to you, and hopefully we can um, get into to some of these bigger issues here. Um, for those of us in the West trying to follow along with what is happening in Gaza, we have limited and often skewed information that we receive in the news, and, and many of us just have very little context for Gaza and its history. Can you give us a quick summary of the history of the Gaza Strip over the last 16 years uh, since the blockade began? Thank you, Jen. Um, as a contextual theology scholar, context matters, and history matters. And I think 16 years uh, um, ago is not the starting point. Um, we have to go more than a hundred years ago because this genocidal language was used by European colonialists and Zionists to justify the colonization of Palestine and the expulsion of Palestinians. It was used and utilized even biblical narratives in order to displace the Palestinian people, killing entire villages and uh, small communities. And by the way, my family, my maternal part of the family, my grandmother was displaced in 1948, and she uh, was forced to leave to Gaza. So this is where it can be the starting point. Israel occupied Gaza in 1967, and since then, Israel was in total control of Gaza and Gazan borders, despite the fact that in 1993, and according to Oslo Agreement, which starts with Jericho and Gaza, a Palestinian would were promised a statehood starting from those two cities. Still, the Israelis uh, maintained full control over the borders, the economies, and the people movement, and the governments uh, in Gaza and Jericho, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip in general. With the beginning of the Second Intifada, 
in 2000, in the year 2000. We are familiar that uh, many Palestinians resorted to violent and military uh, responses to the Israeli colonization and the Israeli military. In 2005, and after the assassination of Yasser Arafat, the first Palestinian president, the international community, of course, uh, with the United States, the EU, they require that the Palestinian Authority conduct a democratic election uh, in the Palestinian territory, West Bank and Gaza. Hamas, which for so long was uh, in the opposition of Oslo Accord and peace agreements with Israel, because Hamas, from its very beginning, it has a long history that we don't and we cannot get into. It's very detailed. But Hamas ideology and uh, political vision is totally different compared to the PA and the Liberal Party, uh, sort of, in Palestine. So the Liberal Party who signed a peace agreement with Israel, Israel didn't fulfill its part. And many Palestinians started to look at the PA and Fatah as collaborators. Now, I would like say, to say even uh, security contractors for the Israeli colonialism and colonial forces. During that election, Hamas claimed to be the party of reformation and integrity. So Palestinians voted for Hamas because they hoped that the PA uh, now will be acting with more honesty, integrity, and will conduct a reform that will at least bring them what they were promised a statehood uh, somewhat in the future. However, it seems the democracy is tailored to groups and nations by the United States and EU, and anything doesn't fit that tailored democracy, it's demonized and dehumanized. And that's exactly what happened in Gaza in 2006 when Hamas won the election, the EU, the United States, the Israeli governments did not respect the desires of the Palestinian people to have, uh, just to have the government that they chose. We can disagree with Hamas as much as we want, you know, but that was the choice of the Palestinian people based on the failures of the PA and Israel and the United States and the EU for almost back then uh, 50 years or 60 years. Okay, so since then, 2006, Israel uh, closed all the gates on Gaza, literally all the gates. Uh, some people even refer to Gaza an open-air prison. And that's not right, because prisons are made for criminals, but Gazans are not criminals. About 70% of Gazan population is refugees, people who were displaced, like my grandmother, from their hometowns in 1948, and live in unhumane conditions in uh, refugee camps, relying heavily on the United uh, UN UNRWA um, support and assistance to meet their daily needs. And they have this desire that one day they will return to their homeland as the United Nations also promised them in their Article 194, right? So you have now the people of Gaza are being placed in sort of concentration camp with limited water. About only 5% of the water is drinkable in Gaza. Only six to eight hours of electricity, which supplied only by Israel. Israel made a very sophisticated, complicated system that makes Gaza totally reliable, and the West Bank, by the way, reliable on Israel. So Israel controls water, controls electricity, economy, 
in Gaza, what gets in, what comes out. Even people who need treatment for terminal diseases, they need to pass to the West Bank, to Jerusalem, and they have to get Israeli permission, which, in fact, very difficult and nearly impossible to get. So you have this group of people, around 2.3 million nowadays. The number has dropped, of course, after these uh, genocides that are happening in Gaza right now. Caged uh, in concentration camp. And they have been crying out, crying out for the last 16 years for the world to hear their stories and their sufferings. However, the world decides with complete intention to ignore their cries. And what we see today is only a one episode of what has been happening for the last 16 years. There are people who believe in nonviolent resistance, creative nonviolent resistance, like many Palestinian Christians, like what I do, I believe in creative nonviolent resistance as the only resort for peace and justice in Palestine. But there are other people who are now uh, in Gaza being uh, humiliated, uh, denied the basic human rights. They are mostly refugees. Many of them are well-educated but cannot find jobs because unemployment rate in Gaza is around 69%. And you ask them just to um, suppress their voices and cries, or like what Americans like to say, it's suck it up and keep moving, and accept the status quo without revolting against your oppressor, which you know very well. You can see them on the towers uh, looking on you, uh, observing and recording uh, every aspect of your life, literally, literally every aspect of your life, even what you cook, they know exactly what you're doing. So there is this surveillance system that even makes privacy in Gaza impossible. And when people respond, even if they resort to violence, which I disagree with, you question and you blame them. And what actually has been enraging for me that the whole world now is punishing Gazans, you know, for what Hamas did, and completely ignorant. Uh, ignorant, it's not even a good word, because they are intentionally refused for 16 years to listen to the cries of Palestinians. And now, only because of what happened, they decided even to listen, but to listen in support for the Israeli government atrocities committed against civilians and people in Gaza. By the way, for the last 16 or 17 days in Gaza, because of the Israeli um, besiege and the blockade and the Israeli attacks, people in Gaza, they are lucky if they get a half loaf of a bread a day. That's what my family get. A half loaf of a bread a day and 50 mil, 500 millimeter of water. That's it all. And if you, you are lucky if you get that even. And this has been the context and the history that matters for so long. I think people of, of Gaza have been for so long forgotten in a cage to the way that were, they were dehumanized, unseen from the international community and its consciousness to the point that their death and their suffering now doesn't matter at all. Thank you, Yusuf. I'm really glad that you went beyond the last 16 years and provided us a little bit more context. Um, and I just want to to clarify a little bit for our listeners. When Yusuf says in 1948, his family was displaced, uh, that was during the widespread displacement of 
at least 750,000 Palestinians from their villages. Some villages completely wiped out uh, the Nakba or the catastrophe. Uh, we're going to talk more about this in later episodes, um, but if this is a term uh, that you are not familiar with, we encourage you to do a little bit more research on it. Um, but that's when Yusuf says his family was displaced. They now live in Gaza because they were displaced from their village, as is the case with virtually everyone that lives in Gaza, right? Most Gazans were displaced in 48. Um, and so just want to make that clarification. And then in 1967 was when Israel gained control over it. And then just the last 16 years, just <laughs> the last 16 years when Gaza has been completely enclosed by borders, um, you might have heard the term open air prison used to describe Gaza, the world's largest open air prison. Um, a lot of helpful voices recently have been encouraging us no longer to refer to Gaza in that way because it infers that Gazans are imprisoned because they have done something wrong. Uh, and that rather concentration camp is a more accurate depiction of of the reality uh, of what what Gazans experience uh, and more so the reasons underlying why they are there. That being, there are no concrete reasons other than uh, the it has been uh, a choice of, of the Zionist regime and, and Israeli military occupation uh, to keep Gazans in such conditions. So let's then let's then kind of focus on Hamas because the whole conversation in in the West especially is about Hamas and how it is a duty and it's a responsibility for for um, for Israel to respond. They say Israel has a right to self defense. Um, you're you're complicating this narrative, right? Like you're saying what the reality in Gaza, not just from forty eight from the Nakba but also especially in the last 16, 17 years, have created this kind of ground that that eventually, like, what Hamas did, though it is horrible, but makes sense, right? Like, this is an, a natural, realistic kind of outcome of oppression. That oppression leads to, violence leads to violence. Oppression leads people to take some radical measures in response to the oppression they face. Now, I think it's obvious that the discourse in the West is uh, intentionally devoid of any context, like you're saying, right? Co context matters. Um, but then at the same time, we also have to be self-critical, especially as Palestinians, and how we think about Hamas. So, like, how do we how do we think about this? Uh, the uh, you you hear Christian leaders in the U.S., especially evangelicals, who are saying Hamas is pure evil. There is no justification. There is nothing that can be done except to exterminate evil. Evil has to be eradicated completely. And Christian voices are the ones who are kind of pushing strongly for this, for the Israeli, you know, ongoing war on Gaza. Um, but then to have that, let's have now this kind of Palestinian perspective. How do you as a Palestinian think about Hamas? And especially because you're a Palestinian Christian and you made it very clear to us that you reject violence and you, you, you reject the killing of any human being. Uh, how do you as a Palestinian Christian who believes in nonviolence, you said, I think you called it the crea creative nonviolence. How do you think about Hamas? Um, how do Palestinians in general think about Hamas? I think you alluded to the fact that some Palestinians or many Palestinians saw Hamas at least initially as this kind of pure reformist um, party that was trying to like basically fix or replace the corrupt uh, Palestinian authority and Palestinian government. So I think that was the beginning. But how do you think about Hamas right now? And also, how do you, re how do you respond to the uh, latest attack you know, two weeks ago against Israel? 
Uh, where to start, Danny? This is a very long, very complicated question. Sure, sure, sure. And I will address it in three points. And I think I start from the first one you mentioned, Israel right for self-defense. And that's the talking point for many people. And by the way, the international law and its charts talk about self-defense only in cases of war between two countries. Self-defense is a right for countries have equal military power sometimes or sort of, but they have the same status internationally. Um, and a government committed an aggression against another country, then that country can have the right for self-defense. However, Palestinians are not a country. Uh, Palestine is an observant state in the United Nations, and Israel doesn't recognize the Palestinians or Palestine as a state. And by the way, this is against even the Oslo Accord, which was signed in 1993, where the PA recognized the rights of Israel to exist as a state and recognized Israel as a state. So keep this in mind, Palestinians recognized Israel as a state in 1993. However, Israel did not and does not recognize the Palestinian rights for self-determination and statehood. So this law, international law for self-defense, doesn't apply to Israel accordingly because Palestinians are not a state or Palestine is not a state. So let's make this very clear. Palestinians are people under occupation and colonization according to the international law and the United Nations. If you look it up on the United Nations, Palestine, West Bank, and Gaza are considered occupied territories. So in fact, self-defense is right given and granted and protected for people who are under occupation, not for the occupier and oppressor. So there is a play and turning around the truth that's happening by the major powers around the globe and the media indoctrinating and conditioning people to believe something that's not true when it comes to the international law and using these very sophisticated languages of right for self-defense. And I hope this is somehow my point to clarify this issue. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Cesar. Second point, uh, which is very important, I think, when we look at Hamas, and let's be very clear. Um, Hamas has the power arm of 100,000 members, maybe. The total of the Islamic parties in Gaza Strip, the total of members of Islamic parties, including Hamas and Jihad, I think is around 200,000 members. Keep in mind, those are members of families. They are children and fathers and brothers of people who live in Gaza who were displaced in 1948 and the United Nations granted them the right to return to their homeland and their villages. And by the way, the majority of the refugees who are in Gaza, displaced in 1948, come from Ashkelon and the coastal area, from Yaffa, Tel Aviv, which is, was in Tel Aviv, it was creation of the Zionist militias and later the Zionist government. And the coastal areas that are close to Gaza, which the Zionist militias displaced in 1948. So you have those people who believe that they are refugees, denied their basic human rights, in engaged, um, encaged by the Israeli occupation forces in Gaza Strip, denied their basic human rights, and they were radicalized, not only because of their ideology, but also the sense of hopelessness and the lack right. of 
horizon for a future. Imagine if actually in 2006, when Hamas took over the government, it was given all the opportunity to prosper, to rule people according to the international law. Wouldn't have been different now? I, I believe everything would have been different. However, the international community and Israel decided to mass incarcerate the people of Gaza. Collective punishment of the whole people, right? Exactly. Collective punishment of all the Palestinians, not only Gazans, but Gazans is more the, the manifested part of the Palestinian suffering nowadays. So keep this in mind. I don't in any way approve any act of violence against any human being created in God's image. Mm-hmm. Let's make this very clear. Every person, every person is granted by God the right for life and dignity. And no one has the right to strip any person from that right. Palestinian or Israeli or American or European, anyone doesn't have that right. It was granted to us by God. So just to make this very clear, at the same time, we need to understand the psyche, the context, the situation, the fertile soil of Gaza that made it possible for ideologies, extremist ideologies to happen. So this is the second point. And I have something in mind even for this, which is very important because people sometimes uh, forget about it. Especially in America, and I believe most of your audience are Americans, right? And they are very supportive of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and for one to have a rifle and defend his house or her house, right? Mm-hmm. If you have intruders. And they are willing to do it. Like in Florida, if someone on the street like tries to get closer to you, you can carry your gun and shoot them. And that's okay. You are protected under the law. However, when Palestinians are trying to protect their homeland, they are not granted the same right. Another question. If a woman is taken a hostage and raped for 10 years or 16 years and sees a chance to break free, wouldn't you support any act she would do in order for her to liberate herself from the the aggression, the injustice that she experienced, I think all of us ethically would support her. We want her to be freed from her rapist, the one who has been uh, like taking her hostage for the last 16 years. However, this woman is Gaza, is denied this right. And instead, she's blamed as the victim. And this is, I think it's more feminist theology to talk about it even. The third point, which is very important, and I I will conclude with this. Hamas is an Islamic movement, which has an Islamic ideology, believing in God's kingdom, right? God's rule through the Quran, through the liberation of Palestine. And by the way, many Christians in the West believe in the same ideologies, but they like to call themselves conservative evangelicals or conservative Christians who still believe that they have the right to use guns against any person. They have the right to dehumanize and demonize people like in Iraq and Afghanistan or any countries in Yemen, Somalia, and kill one million of them because they believe, oh, God has a greater plan. God's kingdom, if we support the killing of those infidels, those uh, uh, non-Christians, and we support the state of Israel in its oppression of the Palestinians, it's invasion of the Arab countries, Christ will come back and the kingdom of God will be restored. So there is no difference, in fact, between Hamas and conservative evangelicals who believe only in two different ideas, 
the first beliefs in the kingdom of God according their Islamic ideology and justify violence. And you have those evangelicals and conservatives who believe in God's kingdom and justify violence against other people. Right. The Second Amendment goes like this, that there is a, a well-regulated militia is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Like the right to you to create a militia. And I think supposedly also if, if there's a limitation on the possession of, of arms for the American people, that would lead to tyranny. Like So to defend yourself, to make sure that there is no tyranny of the government, you have a right to formulate militias and, and bear arms. And And I'm like, goodness gracious, like, that sounds like Hamas rhetoric. We need to formulate militia to defend ourselves against the tyranny of the government, and in this case, it's Israeli government. I actually didn't know that that language of militia was in the Second Amendment. Right. So it's actually I just actually looked it up now to just make sure. That, that, yeah, that's incredible. And I think what Yusuf has just done, like you've done this really helpful thing of humanizing Hamas while while not condoning their violence and yet humanizing, helping us understand the conditions, right? You're saying we can't do theology without context. We can't interpret what's happening in Gaza without the context. We can't understand Tomas without this, you know, without this uh, really long history, which we've only barely scratched the surface of, but you've helped us understand the conditions upon which this violence has been, has been bred and, and created. Um, and I think that like the example of a woman who's held hostage and raped is is a helpful like ethical framework for us to consider. Um, you know, you could say the same thing about a child who's held in a concentration camp. Would we not uh, affirm that that child should do anything that they can to break free? And so I think your your humanization and kind of posing a few ethical quandaries for us hopefully help challenge some of the narratives that most of us in the West in, inherit and internalize about uh, terrorism, right? That we hear Hamas, that we hear Palestinians, that we hear of most people in the Arab world and make these connections, these associations with terrorism, our Islamophobia bubbles up and it informs how we're going to interpret any of these situations. So thank you. Exactly. I think you, you mentioned a very important point here. Terrorism. Because it seems that there is only one group of people who defines terrorism in the way it fits their agendas and their politics. Yes. That's something we need to look into more deeply and try to identify what exactly means, specifically when it's used to justify oppression, dehumanization, demonization, the killing of the other who are different uh, than us. The second point I, I catch from you, which is very interesting, especially for Christians, and I have been meditating and chewing on this idea in my brain for so long. Christians are supposed to be the light and salt for this world. And the Bible mentions thou shall not fear 365 times, right? I, I think I, I went to many evangelical churches to remember this number very well. You say, you say right, and I'm like, um, sure, I'll believe you. 365 lessons, right? <laughs> Many evangelical preachers usually at least once a year they mention that, right? <laughs> However, we live in an age that the church is promoting Islamophobia, xenophobia, homophobia. So we are part of the issue because we are not being faithful to the mission of being salt and light to this world. 
We are not being faithful to carry God's promises. Thou shalt not fear when we promote hatred and fear of the other. And that's include the people of Gaza, the Palestinians. And by the way, this is the same talk that I would give to the Palestinians. Because my Jewish neighbors, my Israeli neighbors, my Zionist even neighbors who I disagree ideologically with, still created in God's image, they deserve to live in dignity. They deserve prosper. And we shall not fear because fear strips humanity away from the other. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I appreciate this. Um, at the same time, I want to go back to Hamas just to keep um, problematizing the issue for us because I, I see the point. I see the point that it makes sense that self-defense is a motivation for for Hamas. Um, and I actually saw I, I saw some footage of the, the militia, the Hamas members who when they entered into Israel, they, I saw one person who was weeping that he couldn't believe that he actually made it into into Israel because for that person who was a third generation refugee, he wasn't invading a, different, a foreign country. For him, it was going home, and he was weeping like, "I can't believe I just saw my home." Like he, I think he was in Beer Sabah and Beersheba, and he was crying, "I can't believe I just saw Beersheba," which is like presumably where his family is from. Um, so there's this, this kind of this idea that I am going home and I'm breaking out of this concentration camp, this prison, to go home. Um, so I get that human element, and you know we should not be surprised that three generations of refugees would wanna would wanna break out. You know that they you cannot. The statement is you can never underestimate the desire, the will of a people to be free. And I think Hamas, in many ways, represents this. Um, and that's part of I think the Palestinian desire and hope and struggle for the last seventy five years is to be free. At the same time, Yusuf, we have also have to deal with the fact that. Uh, Hamas targeted civilians and that's kind of the sticky point for people in the West, right? Like, it's not like they attacked soldiers, they also targeted um, civilians, presumably innocents and women and men. We don't have all the facts about all of this stuff. We're also getting some disturbing um, news and reports about actually the Israeli military was actually involved in killing some of the Israeli citizens. Doesn't um, that doesn't absolve Hamas of everything. I'm guessing, I'm guessing Hamas was also guilty, is guilty and had killed a lot of civilians as well. It's a complicated message and also have to be aware of propaganda. Now propaganda has been used in the last um, more than two, two weeks. But so we understand the right to defense. We understand, we understand at least from a sociological human perspective, a desire for freedom for the Palestinians. At the same time, we have to be critical that this actually, the targeting of civilians is actually abhorrent and unacceptable. Now, just for Christians, I think you made it very clear. You reject you didn't say I reject the killing of civilians, and that's important. You said the rejection, you reject the killing of any human being. So that includes a soldier and the civilians. So we have to be critical all to that at the same time, but also Hamas in the rules of engagement, when you do warfare, you should not be targeting civilians. So I think I would love for you to kind of to clarify your position there. And then I want to ask also about another talking point that is used in, in the West about uh, Hamas using um, Gazans as human shields and 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 therefore kind of blaming the victim, blaming blaming Hamas for the killing of the Gazans. But let's first, I would I would like to hear your thoughts about like kind of the nuance between a desire for freedom and self-defense and resistance and also the targeting of civilians. This is a very important question. And I think it's, uh, it's very tricky because no one uh, will be happy with any kind of answer because everyone wants an answer fits their own uh, convictions uh, in regard to what, what happened. But let's make a very important foundation for this, which is the following. All people, 
created on God's image, and they deserve to live in dignity and freely. Civilians, or even militants, by the way. You know, I wish the world will just put down their weapons and invest in education and healthcare system than military power and and weapon, including uh, the Israeli military and Hamas. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish we can sell all web- the weaponry that we have and invest it in healing, uh, reconciliation, building a one state for all its people where we can live freely, equally, and uh, prosper together. So let's make this very clear. Okay, Danny, and this is my answer for this question. Nothing justifies violence. Nothing justifies. Even in our pursuit for liberation, violence is not the answer. And I think our uh, biblical and Christian faith, uh, which is incarnated in the person of Christ and his teaching about the kingdom of God, shows us that the kingdom is not established by weapons, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yep. The power of the Holy Spirit that actually lifts up people, cares for the widows and the orphans, and critiques peacefully the systematic injustices in any structural society or, for example, the Roman Empire in the first century. So that's just to lay an important foundation here. Um, Again, history matters when we are looking at the uh, radical Islam and Palestine and in the Middle East in general. I think there has to be more studies on uh, on the history of radical Muslim movements in Palestine and the Levant countries. I don't want to use uh, colonial languages here. Okay? Uh, the Levant countries. Why? Because it's very interesting for me as a person, you know, and as a scholar, when I look at, at the Middle East... Just to, to clarify, the Middle East is a colonial language because it's centering the West. Like, it is the Middle East. You have the Far East from Europe, from the West, the Middle East from the Europe. So that's a colonial language because the center of the world is Europe. So you're saying it's the Levant to describe what we call in Arabic, Bilad sham you know, Syria, Palestine, and that area. Exactly, Danny. Thank you. So when I look back in history and to see what happened and how the society operated in Palestine before 1948, I found out that we had the most, I think, educated people in the region, the highest number of educated people in the region. Actually, Palestinian teachers, uh, males and females, by the way. So even before the Americans sent their uh, females or their women to study in universities, Palestinians did that. Uh, Palestinians send their uh, women and girls to study in uh, the University of Cairo, University of Baghdad, and University of Damascus. And they went on to teach other Arab nations. Like if you go to Kuwait, you go to United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, Libya, Egypt, and you ask them, okay, do you remember what's your, uh, your grandfather teacher? And they would mostly tell you, oh, was a Palestinian. But why I'm saying that? The the region was very developed before 1948 and before the Islamic revolution in Iran in 1978. Everything was different. Uh, maybe Daniel remembers and you can watch it. If you go and watch Arab movie, Egyptian or Lebanese or Syrian movies before 1978, they are very close to Hollywood movies. Uh-huh. Like, yep. uh, 
there was no religious sentiment or extremism in, in the region at all. Even the uh, Muslim Brotherhood didn't succeed, didn't find a fertile land. The majority of the uh, people in the region didn't take the radical or fundamentalist uh, Islamic ideologies. They didn't accept it at all. However, I'm, after 1978, and uh, when the Islamic Revolution happened in Iran, actually the first uh, Khomeini arrived on uh, Air France flight. And he was in exile. Turfa, yes, yes, he was in exile, and France sent him back. Let's be very clear. And the United States supported Saddam in his fight uh, against Iran, right? So, and the United States created uh, the Islamic Mujahideen in several countries to combat the Soviet Union. Yeah, and, and Taliban and, and Afghanistan and as well. Yep. Yep. Right? So we need to look at this. The Islamic fundamentalism wasn't part of the uh, the region, I think, uh, in its ideology, it existed, it was very weak. However, it was enforced from the outside for colonial agendas. And I'm very convinced that the Middle East, without that intervention, would have looked very different nowadays. Yeah, I think you, you so you bring up uh, a very fascinating history of the Middle East, and so you're not you're not seeing Hamas as just a localized phenomenon, but you're seeing this rise of Islamic militancy and so on as part of this kind of broader reality. And and your point, I guess, is to 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 understand the um, relationship between the rise of extremism and colonialism and Western intervention. You mentioned the revolution in Iran. Just the context of that for those who don't know, um, there were the democratic elections in in Iran, and then the. The U.S. the CIA was behind a coup that removed the elected president and established the Shah. The Shah is Farsi or Iranian for the king, and establishes kind of king monarchy that was corrupt, and that was kind of mostly driven by interest in Iranian oil. And then after a few years, the Islamic Revolution happened as a response to the Western corruption and of the Shah of the king uh, in Iran. And then we can talk about you know uh, Western, especially American involvement with. Uh, militant movements and also Hamas because we in the context of Hamas this is a fact now I think people know this that also Hamas was supported by by Israel initially gave them kind of the power and the funding as a way to counter the authority or the influence or the you know the fame of the Palestinian Authority of the PLO movement Uh, so perhaps you know following the guidance of the American interest in using the you know the Taliban and Mujahideen in Afghanistan and and so now maybe you should do the same thing in Palestine and see how that would work to counter the secular kind of more moderate or leftist movement in Palestine. So that's a great context for us, um, Yusuf. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Any any follow up thoughts to that? I think it's always important to look at the macro history, right? Yeah. Before going to the micro, yeah. Uh, because uh, nothing happens in a vacuum, especially in the region of the Levant and the Arab countries. Because there is a very uh, a critical economic power for this region, for the Western empires. And by the way, that's not something uh, undocumented. If you read the books of uh, the British Empire in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, in fact, one of the talking points made convince the British of um, giving Palestine to the Zionist movement was given by 
uh, Hayim Wiseman. Hayim Wiseman, who becomes, a, I believe, the first president, uh, the first president um, of the colonial regime in 1948. So Hayim Wiseman, he talks about protecting the British Empire interest in the region. So the um, the entity, the colonial entity, they wanted to create. It's for one uh, important role to play, which is to protect the colonial interest of the British Empire and the Western Empire in the region. And for so long, Israel has been doing this exact same thing. And we shouldn't read the political context of Palestine nowadays and the region away from that. So very important, I think, it's just to learn history. History is not the past. Actually, it's what helps us move in the present and for the future. So to look from above the meta-narrative in order to understand the particular narrative of what's happening in the region of Palestine and the Levant in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks for that, Yusuf. That's very helpful. And I think this is tantalizing for us who need to like know more about what's happening in the Middle East and understand the power dynamics and the history of oppression and violence and colonialism in, in the Middle East. So this is an encouragement for, for myself and uh, for, for Jen and for the hosts of this podcast to also pursue these questions in our future episodes. Going back to Hamas, and I just kind of want to talk about this accusation or um, claim of, of using uh, Palestinians, Gazans as human shields. Um, Jen mentioned that so far we have 2,700 uh, children uh, were killed in, in Gaza, and the total numbers are, of course, staggering. We're talking about uh, more than 6,500 um, Pal uh, Palestinian or civilians or Gazans in total. Now, the argument that has been used by Zionist propagandists, by the media, by fundamentally by the Israeli government, how do you justify so many civilians are being killed? And the the this, the most common response is, well, this is Hamas, Hamas's fault. We're bombing them, we're killing them, but it's Hamas's fault. Like, very twisted logic. But then the argument is, well, we tell people that they have to leave. They are not leaving. Hamas tells them not to leave, um, and they stay put. Or And then Hamas is intentionally launching rockets at Israel from within civilian areas. This is, I'm telling all of this, you know this, you've heard this all your life. So that's the talking point. And now from my experience before, like before I hear from you, I, I ask my Gazan friends, there's actually a friend of mine here from Gaza um, at the university and ask him, hey, what, what, what do you know anything about this? And he's like, I don't know what they're talking about. Like, this is not the case for us at all. I also was talking to some friends in Gaza right now. And I asked, uh, I asked her Maha about it. And she was like, we just don't know where to go. Nowhere is safe. We're getting bombed left and right. Even those, some of us, she she's from Beit Hanun, so like the far north of the Gaza Strip. She moved to Gaza City. And I'm like, why don't you move to Rafah, to the south? And she's like, I have family members who went to Rafah and they got killed, who moved to the south and got killed. Um, and and the Palestinian position is that Israel is not really interested in uh, targeting Hamas per se. It's, it's about, you know, you know, creating damage and, and knowing that there's a propaganda and there's this argument that Hamas is this human shield and Israel uses this as a as an open check, basically, to do, do whatever you, they want. So that's kind of my take on this. I would love to hear your thoughts on on how do we how do you understand this? How do you respond to this kind of line that Hamas uses hum, Palestinians as human shields? Oh, wonderful. And I think we can speak about this in three main points. Uh, just to be very clear. 
first point which is very important actually Israel is using the Palestinians in order to get after Hamas leaders so this is the important part if Israel is intentional about getting the leaders of the militant groups it has the sophisticated the most advanced technology in the world in order to target the, the militant leadership however Israel decides to use its uh, its weapons which actually um, reports today mentioned that uh, the amount of TNT or guns that Israel has bombarded Gaza with amounts to the bombs that the Americans uh, that the, the, the Americans um, uh, threw on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki that's ab- about I think it's more than 12,000 uh, tons of explosives uh, in Gaza. So I think Israel is in fact is responsible for taking the Palestinian people who Israel put in concentration camp that is very small with the highest density in the world and then bombarding them in order to get to a group of 10, 15 or 20 leaders of a militant group. So it turns around. It's not, I think the question which many Westerners ask is not accurate because there is lack of context. This is the first point. The second point is to look at Gaza demography and geography. Gaza is only 141 square mile, which is 365 square kilometer. And now uh, with this Israeli aggression, Israel actually created one kilometer is around, I think, um, 0.8 miles into Gaza, which is considered a military operation zone. So even the number decreased in size for Gazas, and they are pushed inside this area, closed by the army, closed by a wall. And of course, the coastal area is totally also closed by the Israeli uh, um, Israeli military. So. You have all these people are pushed inside Gaza Strip. And the number of people now is 2.3 million who live in that very limited space. Makes Gaza, uh, I think, one of or the one and the uh, highest density in the world. I think six people live in a um, uh, square meter, which is according to the United Nations and Ministry of Health, uh, like, I think uh, health organizations, international health organizations, um, each individual needs around three square meters in order to, to live healthily. And you have six Palestinians live in one square meter. So you have put all these people in that limited space, the highest density, and you bombard them because there is a militant group among them, right? That doesn't justify it, of course. This is the second point, and I hope it's clear. The third point which is very important. Most of the members of those militant groups have families who live in Gaza. <laughs> right. They didn't come from Mars. They didn't come from space. They have families on Gaza, families that they believe and they love their kids, that they would do whatever to protect them. And, you know, there is no way, there's no other place for the militant group to go other than above the ground and Israel now talks about different uh, network of tunnels uh, below but there is no other place to go unless if they decide to to ship them somewhere in the space that's where they are that's where they have been placed 
uh, by the Israeli government and the Israeli military. And it's it's puzzling when you ask those people how they shall uh, fight and from where they shall fight. So you have this, um, again, people who have family members who loves them and cares for them, and they believe in their convictions and their con- the convictions of their also children that they want to go back to their homeland. They want to go to the villages that they were displaced from. And Israel has been for since the, the beginning of this uh, aggression, asking Gazans to give up on Hamas. And they ask Hamas to give up all its uh, guns and uh, surrender itself in order to uh, just to stop the, or to do a ceasefire, to stop the attack on Gaza, which is nonsense. Uh, I don't think a mother is willing to give up on her uh, child or her uh, brother or her husband, who are considered by many Palestinians are like a resistant movement. So we need to keep these these ideas and these concepts in mind when we are talking about human shields. There is no human shields. Israel is the one is using a human shield because it's placed people in this concentration camp, you know, and asked the people and their children and those who want to fight back not to resist. That's very helpful, um, Yusuf. Um, also, it makes me kind of think about this kind of targeting of civilians. Um, and the rhetoric by Israel and also the West and the U.S. is that we need to exterminate Hamas. So you want to do that, but you're also killing so many people. And I'm like, if you're killing so many kids and so many civilians, like, is it really shocking for you if one of these, you know, a, a son who lost his dad or a, you know, a dad who lost his kids, like, are you actually surprised if this person is going to join Hamas later on? Or... If you exterminate Hamas, let's say Hamas is gone, do you think the idea of armed resistance, like armed struggle, is going to disappear from the psyche and from the Palestinian struggle? Like, yeah, you can do, you can exterminate all of the Hamas members, but you, by by terrorizing people and by killing so many civilians, you're actually creating a very fertile land for more militancy and more aggression and more violence by by some Palestinians. So it's not doesn't really work. And we saw the example of this in Afghanistan. 20 years of a war against Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Taliban are now ruling the country in Afghanistan, right? You cannot do that. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this kind of the, the idiocy, I mean, I think it's just more, more, more evil than just calling it idiotic. But this assumption that you can kill people and by killing people, if you think they're not going to avenge themselves or avenge their family members is insane. It's insane to me. I think it's, this is a very important uh, idea, Daniel. Violence breeds violence. And, uh, you know, you cannot repeat the same uh, stupidity over and over again and expect a, a different result that bring about peace. No? <laughs> That's insanity, right? Yes, you've been insane. You, you, you expect to do the same thing twice, thinking of different results. Yeah, exactly. I think the only, the only way forward is uh, justice. This is the first step. Justice peace and from that point we need to work hard on healing the trauma of the last 75 years in Mm. order to accomplish reconciliation and uh, unfortunately unfortunately what the world is trying to bridge on us is peace without justice 
And by the way, it's a biblical principle that it's only by justice you can harvest peace. And I, I tell people, especially evangelicals, just remember that Christ himself had to become the justice of God on the cross in order for us to have peace with God the Father. I love that, yeah. Without justice on the cross, there is no peace with God. And because we have peace with God through Christ, who accomplished the justice on the cross, now we are reconciled. There is no other way around. There is no a shortcut. It's a longer process that we need to be responsible enough and be faithful to walk it slowly and uh, with intentionality. Gosh, there's so much that you uh, have shared, Yusuf, that I want to respond to. But um, I think just going back to something that you shared a few minutes ago, um, the comparisons that the amount of bombs dropped on Gaza are similar to what the United States dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think is a really helpful parallel, especially in terms of uh, wars that that Americans have since widely repented of and understood that, that we did wrong in. Uh, I think that's a helpful uh, kind of parallel for us to think with when we think about the genocide that is ongoing in Gaza. Uh, and something that I didn't mention in the introduction is that several human rights watch organizations have since confirmed Israel's use of white phosphorus, of dropping that on Gaza, uh, an, uh, an intense chemical um, that spreads uh, on skin, in the air, on any kind of material and helps flames uh, ignite and spread very quickly. Uh, it's also damaging, uh, I believe, to, to inhale into the lungs. So not just not just bombs and the destruction uh, of of buildings and infrastructure, um, but but also very harmful chemicals. Um, and I think just to the point too that that Israel has immense uh, capabilities to to strike with with accuracy. And, and yet is not, um, is, is really just bombing everything. Um, there, there's no, there's no way to parse apart whether they're, they're trying to exterminate Hamas or not. Although that's, as we've discussed, a misnomer that, that Hamas or the, the spirit behind Hamas will, will not be wiped out. Um, there's, there's a link, um, to a really helpful chart that Al Jazeera has put out that we'll, we will share in the show notes. Uh, but over 207 educational facilities have been hit, 34 health centers, 24 ambulances have been damaged, 11 water sanitation facilities. And so the, the, the widespread uh, kind of infrastructure that has been decimated as well, I think, speaks to some of those points that, that you made, Yusuf. Um, but to, to turn back to to where you were just taking us, Yusuf, um, getting into some of the theology behind nonviolent resistance. You've used this phrase, creative nonviolent resistance, uh, which is something that you're committed to. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you might want to talk a little bit more about that and what you mean by that. Um, and then in our next episode, we're going to have a conversation about Christian responses to what's happening in Gaza specifically. Um, but we'd love to hear from you on this. Uh, and, and in your opinion, what should a Christian response look like to the current genocide in Gaza? Um, 
you've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, Hamas, but is there, should there be a certain kind of Christian response to Hamas? Uh, and, and, and what ways that you might be thinking about uh, theologies that might need to be deconstructed to make that possible? Yes. Um, thank you, Jen. Uh, actually, I was watching the news, just came in that the US, UK, and France vetoed um, a proposal for a ceasefire and a humanitarian corridor, I believe, uh, in the Security Council. This is for the third time being vetoed. So even ceasefire to protect the human lives and civilians and a humanitarian corridor is not something to be uh, taken seriously by the US, UK, and France. This is heartbreaking. And in fact, I don't see this away from Western theology, and I will bring this together. Western theology is a colonial theology, generally speaking. Uh, I did part of my dissertation on post-coloniality and post-colonialism and looked deeply into how Christianity and colonialism uh, went hand in hand in many uh, instances throughout the history, especially in some countries like the UK and, uh, of course, France. Uh, and the United States, where the Christian faith was used to justify a superior attitude toward the people in the East, such as in India, in Africa. Those are the heathens who need to be educated and uh, Christianized in order to be saved. And uh, there are many missionaries who did a great job, you know, and they were loving and caring, and they carried God's love for the other nations to believe in Christ and to to be saved by Christ. But also many missionary and mission agencies uh, were participants, active participants, and the least extent uh, complicit in the colonial projects of the Western countries around the world. They didn't only colonize the land, uh, exploit the resources and the people, but also the minds. And uh, I love because there is a whole colonization of the mind. Uh, missionaries didn't only bring uh, their colonial ideology, they brought their colonial theology as well that uh, made some people think that the white man understands the Bible much better than us and we need the leadership of a white man and their theology and it's their theology that determines what's right and what's wrong. Even when their theology justified genocide after genocide in India, in Africa. And by the way, uh, as a Christians, we have to repent for our history, uh, the blood uh, that we have on our hand as Christians in total, even as Palestinians who have nothing with that. But I still believe that as a Christians, as the body of Christ, we need to repent for that. So theology goes hand in hand with colonialism, and the same happens in Palestine. Because the Israeli Colonialism started as a Zionist ideology, which also came from a Christian Zionist theology that started earlier than Jewish Zionism. So just to be very clear, you had these Christians who carried colonial Zionist ideology, it's proto-Zionism, much earlier than the actual Jewish Zionism in the late 1800s. And those theologians from the West, particularly from um, England, the British Empire, and 
the United States somehow had the political power and will and their governments in order to push forward their agenda in order to fulfill their own interpretation or misinterpretation worse of some biblical texts that believe if they send the Jews back their supposedly homeland the second coming of Christ will take place in the in the 1850s you have a person who had the strong uh, political power his name Lord Shaftesbury who created the mission um, for Jews in, in Britain uh, had the power to convince people within the British government to follow his interpretation and his conviction and he's actually the first to say that there is a land without people you know for a people without land and and those people he literally says the sons of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and later this is became the this theological interpretation and and fantasies about the end time and apocalypse became the political and colonial ideology that um, launched Zionism and we know that uh, Israel Zwingli uh, Israel Zwingli, not Zwingli, Zwingli was the first to use this as a motto for the Zionist movement um, a people without land, a land without people for a people without land so it's started as colonial Western colonial theology and moved on in Palestine and despite the fact that many Palestinian Christians started to counter the Zionist uh, Christian Zionist narrative uh, of course they were suppressed by the British Empire in the early 1900s very late even 1800s around the 1895-1898 uh, we get to see some Palestinian Christians start countering and challenging that narrative but of course they were suppressed by the British Empire but why I'm bringing all of this together? Because most of the Christian the colonial theology, it's a theology of power, theology of, of expansion, um, going over there, colonize people, take their resources, enslave them. And this is actually, uh, it's very evident in the history of the United States and slavery, right? So you have this kind of theology is evident. Well, they see power, by the powerful at the expense of the powerless as something given to certain groups of people by God through their interpretation of the Bible. So for so long the West and Western theology, and I don't want also to overgeneralize, major trends of Western theology held into this power and war kind of theology. However, when pacifist came in, they provided a counter-narrative, right? So, like, no war at all, no gun at war. And it seems for so long we have been between only two narratives, and they are mostly Western narrative, pacifist, and those war and violent colonial, uh -huh. or just even those who use just war um, theory uh, to justify um, war. However, Palestinians decided to choose the third way, and I believe it's Jesus' way. Jesus didn't fit with the uh, liberalism of the Roman Empire and the pluralism of the Roman Empire and didn't fit with the conservatism, fundamentalism of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Zealots of the first century. Jesus' way was different and he chose nonviolent creative resistance. And the nonviolent creative resistance, he didn't follow the empire way of responding by power and arm. 
but rather he surrendered himself. But he defended himself when he was accused too. He, he wasn't pacifist. He wasn't silent. He stood up for himself. And when he was uh, slapped, he asked the question. And then think it's a, it's a kind of resistant question. Why you have slapped me? What wrong I have done that I deserve to be slapped? That's not a pacifist attitude. This is actually an active, creative, nonviolent way to questioning the oppressor, trying to remind them of their consciousness and humanity in order to repent and, and stop their oppression. And Palestinians did that very well, not countering the Israeli colonialism with more violence and not being pacifist and putting ourselves in enclaves and closing on ourselves. The way we Palestinians, theologians, and I think as Palestinian Christians in general, we decided to take is creative nonviolent resistance. It means that we challenge the Israeli oppression and colonialism. We do, we do not approve our retreat to violence because that's not part of our faith and our convictions. However, there are other means to do so, such as boycotting uh, the companies that support and feeds and funds the oppressive regime. For example, nowadays, because of the war on Gaza, you get to see it on social media, uh, lists of companies such as McDonald's, uh, Burger King, uh, Google, Starbucks, uh, and mostly like Amazon and, and Google who provide uh, very important techs, uh, tech technologies uh, for the Israeli security and military. So when we boycott, divest from those companies, the economic power for the Israeli military and the Israeli government, of course, will collapse. And and we have seen successful examples in South Africa. We have seen examples in India with Gandhi of nonviolent resistance. And uh, as Palestinian Christian, and I need to repeat this for emphasis, we don't choose the violent way to resist our oppressors. At the same time, we don't use the passive way, but we use Jesus' way to challenge the oppressors and find creative way in order to uplift the suppression. And on our pursuit for liberation, we are also liberating our oppressors. I think that's that's helpful. Um, I know that I'm going to be mulling over that, and I hope that our listeners will be. I think we'll have to have you back in a future episode to talk more about uh, the particularities of creative nonviolent resistance. But I think even just what you've provided for us kind of breaking apart this binary between violence and and passive nonviolence that has been constructed in Western theology and saying, actually, uh, there is a way that a lot of other people in the world that have been doing theology, and especially Palestinians, that's a, an active form of resistance, right, with, with engaging in direct action uh, and direct resistance uh, of the occupation of other forms of oppression um, rather than, than a passive nonviolence, a, a passive kind of anti-war stance. Uh, so thank you for that, Yusuf. Um, and, and thank you so much um, for all that you've shared with us. This has been such a rich and a challenging conversation for us. Uh, and we're really grateful for, for what you've shared. Yeah, thank you, Yusuf. Thank you, Yusuf. Your, your voice is important, um, just from being someone from Gaza, but also such a strong voice. And you are practically... Uh, showing us what it means to love the enemy and and to love the neighbor and also and there's a, a very necessary critique of christianity and how christianity especially in the west thinks about the middle east and also how 
we can also think better about how to think about violence and Hamas and Israel and the reality on the ground. So your voice is so important. Uh, Yusuf, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was actually a wonderful conversation to have. Um, might have stimulating either, even, you know, for me to start to reflect while I'm speaking and the questions you asked were very insightful. Thank you for listening, friends. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to see more content like this, please consider becoming a financial supporter of Across the Divide. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly supporter of the podcast through our Spotify page. The hosts of this podcast are Daniel Van Nora, Jen Madrand, and myself, Abish Hadi. Salim Anfus is our amazing producer. Special thanks go to Charlie Rishmawi for composing the theme music. If you have questions, topics you'd like to suggest for future episodes, or just wish to show us some love and support, please reach out through Instagram at Across the Divide Podcast. Until next time. Mm-hmm.